May you hear the word of Christ this morning. I know that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken away from it. God has made it so. In order that we should fear before him, that which is already has been, that which is to be already has been, and God seeks what has been driven away. A people who are called out in order to show the world that you indeed are alive. And so, Lord, as we hear the words that are given to us this morning, may we take them in and may they nurture and nourish our souls so that we might be that people who are called out. Father, we ask you to quiet our hearts, quiet our minds, and to hear your word this morning. We offer these things in Christ's name. Amen. Again, apologies for that. So once it comes to this morning's sermon, I continue to go back and forth on the sermon title. Uh, and so I finally arrived at something on Saturday. And it is rumors of angels. Christ's work endures forever. Rumors. We don't know anything about that, do we, in a small town? We know plenty about that once it comes to rumors. Rumors, uh, maybe famous rumors that we've heard in the past. I'm sorry if I'm going to bust your bubbles, but some of these are indeed just rumors. George Washington wore wooden teeth. Heard that famous rumor? He didn't. But he did have dentures made of elephant ivory, cow teeth, and even slaves. So, no wooden teeth, but he did have dentures of a variety of sort. Or the famous uh, rumor, I was thinking about this one uh, a lot this week. Famous rumor is a child that we heard is pop rocks and coke make your stomach explode. Remember that? How terrifying it was to have pop rocks and then think, oh, if you put coke with this, your stomach will explode. Kids, it's just a rumor. Even though several of us tried it out, we were dared or double dared or triple dog dared to do it. Here's another one. John Wayne's body is frozen in order to be preserved for later study and errors and generations after us. Sorry, it's just a rumor. Uh, Elvis, still alive and well. You know, the death in 19, I believe it's what, 77. He's still dead. I'm sorry. Bust that rumor. But a rumor itself is nothing more than a, a circulating message. It's a circulating story report that provokes attention, doesn't it? It provokes attention. It's meant to provoke attention. Now, you can, of course, have positive rumors and you can have negative rumors at the same time. Negative rumors are typically those that have a hint of truth to them. Now, they started out truthful. But eventually, other facts are twisted into the story or added to the story in order for it to say something that it actually never meant to. They are completely blown out of proportion. Then you can have positive rumors. These are circulating stories that are true, but they're whisperings as opposed to sort of these public announcements. They're whisperings. We can rest assured, church, that Christ's gospel isn't a twisted story. 
that it's not a blown out of proportion story, but indeed the gospel of Christ's life, death, and resurrection has a weight to it. And if it wasn't for those disciples going out and telling the world that indeed Christ had died, but more than that, that Christ had been resurrected the third day, we wouldn't be sitting in these pews. We would not be here today. It was through them circulating a message about the truthfulness of the gospel that is why we sit here, that we sing, that we're able to hear stories of the scriptures and the like. Through these weighty, truthful stories that are circulated and told. And it is this good news, this story of grace that washes guilty consciences clean. It renews our broken hearts and it even resurrects dead, spot, dead bodies. But is Christ's gospel a rumor? Of course, not in that negative sense that we're twisting the truth, but in the positive sense that it is indeed a circulating message, a story, an announcement that provokes attention. I guess like Paul Harvey, you're going to have to wait a little bit longer for the rest of the story. But from what we can gather here in Ecclesiastes 3, 14 and 15, we notice that the teacher, the speaker, the writer is giving us some thoughts to think about. And there's two realities that he holds together. First, it is this, that God's completed work is accomplished. God's completed work is accomplished. And here's the second part, that God's continued work is being accomplished. Those are two things that are held in tension in these verses of 14 and 15. So I want to look at each of them in turn. First, Ecclesiastes states, let me remind us, I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nothing taken away from it. God has done it. There's nothing we as little human beings can add to God's completed work. It is finished. Those three words that Jesus offers on the cross, it is finished. Well, if something is sufficient and it is perfect then there's nothing we can do to perfect what has already been perfected it is completed it is finished it is done some of you who might enjoy math might like it in an equation like this Jesus plus nothing equals everything Jesus plus nothing equals everything or if we can turn it on its head a little everything Minus Jesus, if you have everything in the world, but you don't have Jesus, you have nothing. Whether you add or you subtract, the equation is still very clear that it is Jesus who gives meaning and purpose to everything in which we do. This is one of the fundamental messages that you find throughout Ecclesiastes is that everything matters under the sun. Everything has a purpose, a timing, and a wisdom to it. As I see it, once it comes to reading these few verses in 14 and 15 of chapter 3, it sort of solicits and invites us to a few different responses. The first, this is quite fitting considering the week that we're about to travel into, is a humble thanksgiving to God. Realizing that we had no part in God's redemptive plan except the adding up and the mounting of our sin. 
we just mounted up our sin and God in his perfect grace he forgave he drew close to us took on flesh and redeemed us and such a story as that provokes thanksgiving because of that rich grace and mercy second it should solicit an active love active love in scripture is nothing more than obedience when you live out God's love in your daily life, you're showing the world obedience of what it means to follow after Christ. As Jesus tells his disciples in John's gospel, if you love me, you'll keep my instructions. When we are actively and intentionally loving God and loving neighbor, we are living obediently before Christ. And the last response is pretty simple. Recognizing that God has completed and perfected what his work has been set forth in doing, we can rest in that. That we don't have to add anything to his perfected work. We can rest in that perfect sacrifice of Christ, knowing that it has been completed and it has been finished. As the author of Hebrews in chapter 10 says, For by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. And here we find again something very similar that we read about in Ecclesiastes 3, 14 and 15. Is that you have first the perfect work of Christ, His sacrificial death and His resurrection, but also a sanctifying of the church. His crucifixion and resurrection are perfect accomplishments that undo our sin and also remedy our sin our brokenness yet the crucifixion the resurrection and the sending of the spirit upon the church begins what we call a perfecting process a word that we probably have a tough time saying and we might see in big theology books and it's sanctification what is this sanctification well this leads to the second part of today's sermon God's continued work. We have this God's completed work accomplished, but now God's continued work in and through His church. Sanctification is when we are being worked on by His Spirit, where we are being enabled as if our hearts are being turned on to love God and love others this enabling process, this sanctifying process where we look less like ourselves and more like Christ. That is nothing more than sanctification. When we look less like ourselves and more like Christ. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians, he writes, And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into Christ's image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Christ has already redeemed us, church. His work has been accomplished, and it's been bought with the price of His death. Yet we've been also invited to lean into His Spirit so that we might be restored and refashioned to imitate our Lord and to look more like Him in the most practical and concrete ways in our daily lives. One of my favorite verses comes from Ephesians 2, where Paul writes this, 
for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That word workmanship in the original Greek is very valuable for us in understanding the type of work that God is doing. That word in Greek is poema. Poema. We have our English word that's very close to it. There's a reason behind. Poem. A poema. And I've taught seventh graders and high schoolers long enough that writing a poem is not just a couple day process. Even though that's the kind of assignments that I give to them, you have two to three days to finish this poem. Let's work through, let's revise, let's edit. Let's try to fashion the best and most excellent poem, word choice, stanza. How does this fit into the story you're trying to tell? That's not the kind of poem I'm talking about, even though that they're working towards that. The kind of poema, the workmanship that I think Paul has in mind would be something close to much bigger poems that have been written in the Western world, such as uh, the Odyssey, Beowulf, the Divine Drama, Divine Comedy by uh, Dante, or even Paradise Lost by John Milton. You might not know these works. You might have heard of them. You might have had to read them at some point or had to read them at some point. But each of these are labors, they, didn't re were, they weren't required for two or three days. These were labors that were done over years of time. And the kind of crafting that was involved was very difficult. If I can give you some little background on one of them, Paradise Lost and then the later companion Paradise Regained by John Milton consisted of over 12 books, a poem, over 12 books, over 10,000 lines in just Paradise Lost alone. Over 10,000 lines. You might think that's pretty difficult, but here, let me add something else to it. He wrote it blind. John Milton was completely blind when he composed Paradise Lost. And so what you have is the mind of an incredible human being who was able to, in his blindness, Create a poem, stanzas at a time, hundreds of lines at a time, memorize them, then go back and edit them in his head and know where the edits took place. And then a child or a teenager or some other uh, assistant would come in towards the middle or end of the day and he would recite the poem he had just written in his head. That's the type of poema that I have in mind. Once it comes to Paul's use of that word, workmanship, it is a crafting of your life to look more like Jesus. And it's a labor that God is doing in our hearts, in our minds, in our bodies to make us look less like ourselves and more like Christ. He's editing. He's revising. Well, that part doesn't quite fit right there in your life. Let me give you a little bit more of Christ. He is doing this process and going through this sanctification uh, in our own lives. I haven't been here long at Hickory Grove, but I can be pretty certain that we do some pretty incredible work. 
And two that I've seen again and again for the past four months is hospitality and care for others. Hospitality and, and care for others. We do that pretty well. And, I, and in fact, if I was honest, very well. Where we see needs in our community, we see needs in our families and our friends, and we're quick to jump on it. And we're ready to care for those who are really in need of care. We're ready to welcome others when they need welcoming. They need somebody to, to hear them. We are there to do that. So let's continue to be those kinds of people uh, that show and display that type of radical hospitality. I'll leave us with this this morning. In my early 20s, I had a number of friends. I'm not going to be emotional about this. Silly. Uh, As Jade giggles and tells me good luck. Uh, I had a handful of friends that invited me. I didn't plan on doing this. Of course you don't plan on getting emotional. I had a grand grand group of friends, a handful of them. Uh, I, I knew one of them very well, the others I didn't. But they invited me. They sort of adopted me into this family of friendship that they had already established and that had existed far before that I even got near them. And what was great about these college friends is that they showed me again and again every single day of how heaven can meet earth in the most ordinary ways. The most ordinary ways. We tend to think of churches trying to figure out the most extraordinary ways to love people. Church, it doesn't come like that. It doesn't. Now, there might be snippets that you might hear about a North American church or a church across the globe where there's something extraordinary that happens. But a great majority of the time, ministry and being a servant comes in the most ordinary, humble ways in your daily life. And it was through these friends that I realized that, that it comes through just the most ordinary, mundane moments of our life in which they tried to understand how heaven can meet earth for just a moment. And I ran across this quote this morning, my early morning reading, and the sermon was finished, it was done, but I had to throw it in there because it is going to this very point. Jen Pollock Mitchell, which I would greatly suggest her book, Teach Us to Want, is spot on when she writes this. In order for desire to be protected from its journey east, and she has in mind journey east as in Adam and Eve when they were banished from the garden, where do they head? They go east. Protected from its journey east, we will need to humble ourselves and implicate ourselves in the ordinary, honest, and usually messy endeavors of the local church, praying for the grace to survive the ways that we fail it and also how the church fails us. When I read that quote, I thought, that sounds a whole lot like the servanthood and ministry of Jesus. Humble, where we implicate ourselves, we throw ourselves into the ministry that Jesus has already started in the most honest, 
ordinary and messy endeavors. If you read the Gospels, if you just take a couple of days and read John, uh, excuse me, Mark, Matthew, Luke, and John, you'll see that a great majority of Jesus' ministry is very ordinary. He has the most odd uh, encounters with people. He has the most unexpected encounters with people. Very, very few times will Jesus actually know that this isn't going to happen and he tells his disciples. It's rare. But he brings them along the journey right behind him and he shows them how ministry takes place in the most ordinary ways. And it usually comes through a humble servanthood. So yes, ordinary, honest, and messy. That sounds like a whole lot like the servanthood and ministry of Jesus. And so that's where we should continue to labor, Hickory Grove, is with this. May we spread all kinds of rumors about Christ. To the best of our imperfect abilities, let us try to point to Christ, whose perfect work indeed endures forever. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the reminder that we gather this morning because of your grace. And we gather needing much more grace. And if we can just soak for a moment on that. That your perfect work, it endures forever. There's nothing we can add to it. Nothing we can take away. Yet, may we rest in that. May we be thankful for that work. But may we also see on the opposite end of that. Is that even though your work is completed, it's continuing. And then you invite us to be that continued work. That your labor in our, in our lives, that workmanship, that poema that you are creating in our own lives. May you tell your story through our lives. And may our lives reflect your greater story of redemption and hope and faith. And so, Lord, as we lead into a week of thanksgiving, may we remember those things and may we boast also of those things with our lips and our lives. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.